Welcome, everybody, to episode 123 of the Metabilis 2 podcast. My name is Ben. And I am David. And we are going to continue our centenary rundown and chat about all things Pertwee-based. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I was going to start with um, uh, Wurzel Gummidge. Yeah. Sound tempting? A show that <laughs> I have only seen once and did not see the appeal, so I'm wondering if it's more of a British thing. I'm curious, when did you see it? That's I, was it was it broadcast at all? No, it wasn't broadcast at all. I had a coworker from the UK from the 2004-2005 time, and that was right when the uh, the return of Doctor Who was on the airwaves. So British television was uh, much much talked about at, in the office, and he brought right. in his copies of Wurzel Gummidge on DVD, and I brought Blimey. them home and tried to watch them, and <laughs> I just couldn't see the appeal. I thought they were pretty bad. Why didn't you care for them? I I don't, I don't know. It, it, I didn't find them charming or interesting and seemed kind of really uh, low-marquee children's television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um were you watching the australian ones or the or the british ones or don't you even care to remember at this point i i think it was the uk ones because he was a, a brit so my yeah, guess is they it, were on the uk DVDs. i think when it got cancelled it got cancelled and then i think they relocated to kind of filming to australia oh yeah I yeah gummage yeah down under gummage whatever yeah um i hated wurzel gummage um i don't <laughs> think i've actually ever seen more than half an episode. Mm. Um, it was on ITV. Um, I think it started 1980, didn't it? Ooh. 77, I thought. 77. Wait a second. Let's quickly just go to the internet and we'll look up Wurzel Gummidge. Um, 79 to 81. There you go. All right. So it would actually would have just started when I went away to school. So mm -hmm. I could have. That's just when I stopped watching, you know, kids TV. And, of course, you could continue to watch Doctor Who because it was not on at a kid's TV time. I, it was not on on a weekday, a kind of uh, late afternoon on a weekday. Doctor Who was on still on Saturdays, um, certainly in the early part of the 80s. So it was kind of easy to watch. Um, it was also, as far as I remember, this is long-winded background, it was a... Uh, it was a Southern TV production, so uh, and I, I was away at school in the West, so mm -hmm. I'm not even entirely sure that it was even broadcast in the part of the world that I was, so I probably wasn't even able to watch it at school in any case. And when I ever did care to pay attention to it, it was just seemed to be such a, to me, you know, weird... Uh, you know, I was very partisan towards John Pertwee, and I, I, you know, my um, in my kind of t my teenage self felt that he'd sold out, and was playing a stupid scarecrow, and I should not give him the oxygen of publicity by you know watching his ridiculous show. So I hated it, absolutely hated it. Um, I don't think it's funny. I don't think the books are any good. Um, oh, they're based they're on of, books. Oh, yeah. So Ooh. Barbara Euphen Todd. So she's kind of a sub Enid Blyton, kind of, you know, 1930s writer. Um, I've never read the books, to be honest, <laughs> um, because I didn't like the TV show. From what I read, the books are, again, this kind of weird, slightly weird uh, strain of British children's fiction that has its basis in the 30s with the kind of uh forest folk um oh the what are they called the climbo clibo clift or something anyway uh, just just like in germany um thanks to adolf hitler everyone was like going back to the land and hanging out in the woods and making children wear shorts and talking about how races should be pure and stuff that was also sort of happening in britain as well not obviously not to such a hideous extent well obviously not to such a hideous extent as germany um but in a in a way that um you know the scout movement um was big uh and so again there's this strand of fiction which is about mm -hmm. kind of sort of back to the land and kind of into the woods and from what i read the books are actually kind of weirdly creepy in some kinds of ways in that Wurzel Gummidge is brought to life by magic. Um, you know, his head is a turnip. Right. Um, his clothing is, you know, kind of an old army uniform from the mid-Victorian times. 
which actually kind of makes it sound like it might be my thing, but I don't know. <laughs> I just all that kind of twee Englishy nonsense, and um, I mean, yeah, really. I mean, I think for for um, for John Pertwee. It was probably just you know, an excuse to do silly voices again, you know, because he has this broad. And I never actually found from again when I ever watched it, which is kind of was, was really pretty rarely. I didn't find his accent particularly convincing. It was kind of squeaky. It was kind of amorphously rural. My home was in Hampshire, so you know there were plenty of people around who talked with Hampshire accents. It didn't sound like a Hampshire accent to me. Blah 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 blah. It's no good. Hmm. So, well, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. If you're <laughs> expecting me to kind of defend talk about it. Her, defend Purcell Gummidge, <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, it has got Una Stubbs in it, which is cool. Una Stubbs is super cool. Wasn't she the girlfriend? She of... was Aunt Sally. Yeah, yeah. yeah the um, the kind of eponymous girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Do I mean eponymous? Anyway, the the obvious girlfriend of Wurzel. Um, so I think, and yeah, yeah. And there's the crow man who's like a kind of a bigger figure in the books, who's like kind of this kind of spooky magical enemy. And mm. but in the books, he's like actually scary or something. Apparently, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I should actually maybe pick up a copy of World's Gummage and sort of understand that for myself. And I'm not going to. So <laughs> yeah. So I think for me, where it was a bit of a stretch is for I think an American viewer, especially uh, one who grew up when I did it was the Wizard of Oz so you had this scarecrow oh, from yeah. uh Ray Bolger's uh characterization from with Judy Garland and Frank Morgan and right so that that's the that's a scarecrow that resonates with an American audience I guess right and with Pertwee's accents I think it was a little bit hard to understand and it just <laughs> it just wasn't very interesting and of course i've saw this like probably in my 30s so definitely not the demographic definitely not the demographic for this yeah Yeah. so what i think really interests me is that pertwee values wurzel gummage or at least he has said that he thinks that's a better show for him um i yeah i mean i wish someone had asked him about that whether he really meant that i mean i think was he be asked being asked about that at the time like just post gummage during gummage i mean if it was during gummage he's obviously going to say that he likes it better because you know Mm. it's the show he's currently doing if it's just post gummage he's obviously likely to say that because it's something he's just done and you know people are people are you know not bugging him endlessly about how brilliant doctor who is um i i mean i think if you'd asked him in the 90s you know sadly before his slightly prematureish death surely he would have said doctor who really or, or would he have still said Wurzel gummage hmm. i mean all the doctors i think talk about how it's important of them to kind of affect the lives of children maybe he preferred gummage because it um it was, was all uh, him he wasn't falling all, in anyone's shoes on that yeah it was all him he wasn't falling on his shoes and you know uh, you know obviously doctor who has kind of frightening elements to it Mm-hmm. Whereas, as far as I understand it, kind of Gummidge didn't. It was like a, you know, 100% kids show, not the kind of ambiguity. I mean, I, you know, I was in preparation for this. I've been skimming through some uh, some of Pertwee's first season, you know, and obviously, you know, that first season, they're, they're really orienting it towards more of an adult audience. So, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe it was that, you know, mm-hmm. and, the, and the personal appearances and the reaction of kids was kind of, you know, attracting, attracting him. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it, I feel it to be a, a, a massively inferior work. Sorry, um, Gummidge fans. Um, <laughs> well, this isn't a Gummidge Doctor. podcast. So. <laughs> is, is there such thing as a Gummidge podcast? <laughs> no. The Wurzel Gummidge podcast. So The world of Wurzel. Um, mm. And it's just a silly name. What, what the hell? It's just a silly name. You know, mm-hmm. like Wurzel Gummidge. I mean, did he even have scarecrows in America? as that a thing? Well, I guess yeah, he yeah. just said, yeah, he but Wizard they, of Oz. But they came out of the same period. Uh, well, Wizard of Oz is more the 1920s, uh, right. uh, I believe. Uh, but it's the same kind of uh, rural origin, I think, that was going on. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, that's Wurzel Gummidge. That's all we've got to say. Well, unless you've got more to say, it's all I've got to say. Did you, well, on a different topic, did you uh, take a look at his autobiographies, Moon Boots and Dinner Suit and I Am the Doctor? Yes. I own both of those. Um, mm-hmm. I have a signed copy of Moon Boots and Dinner Suits. Now, that has a bit of a reputation, I think, but it doesn't really touch on who at all, does it? 
Not really, no. It's, it's really the kind of lead up to Who. Mm-hmm. And then it's the second volume, is which is a kind of a, a not really kind of a, it's a more of a kind of picture book. Right is the more of the uh, more of the who stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that yeah, came I mean, out after his death too. He never yeah, finished it. Yeah, it's not a it's not a great read to be honest. <laughs> I mean, he's not a he's not a fantastic writer. He's not as sadly it's not as entertaining as Tom, as who is Tom Baker, which is a lot more of an entertaining book. Mm-hmm. I always get always used to get it vaguely confused by um, the Moon's a Balloon, which is. Um, uh, David Niven's autobiography, which is hilarious, because mm-hmm. David Niven was a good writer and a great raconteur, and it always seemed to me a little bit that that Moon Boots and Dinner Suits was kind of a, ooh, I wish I was David Niven sort of book. Mm. Um, I, I'll have to say that you know, I mean, I think Pertwee was an actor and he was a father and he was a, a traveller. Right. And, you know, he was a gadget man. Uh, you know, you can't be everything. Right. <laughs> I mean, to, to expect him to be like an awesome writer as well at the same time mm-hmm. was like, well, yeah, that's not going to happen. So, right. yeah, fine. So, I mean, I don't, I don't hold it against him particularly. Did he touch upon his recording career at all in, in the book? Um, I have not recently reread okay. it. I cannot remember. Um, his recording career, again, like all the doctors, well, I guess, well, no, I mean, I guess they didn't make, they didn't make no. John Baker sing, did no. they? Um well, Pertwee was known for his voice, so he had. It was yeah. He had re, I mean, the record that uh, is kind of, is it infamous in fandom now? Which uh, one's the, infamous? So, uh, John Pertwee sings songs for the vulgar Boltman. Um, is it infamous within fandom? I've never heard it, so I can't say it's not infamous in my fandom. Hmm. Um, do, do do you have a copy of that? Yeah, it's well, it's also on YouTube too. But there, uh, there's well. there's stories like uh, the buxom country maid and. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones. A Captain's Ooh. Love and Ooh, a, a, a Ship Like a Maiden. Yeah, uh, right. the Devonshire, so, Devonshire Maid. So you, you kind of... They're kind of bawdy, bawdy. bawdy folk songs. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful fine. Nancy of Yarmouth. Yarmouth? Yarmouth? Yarmouth. 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 Yarmouth is how you pronounce that word. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is it... Um, I have to say I've not... <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a big enough fan to really spend a lot of time examining that one. Oh, all right. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's literally the whole thing available on YouTube. Oh, probably. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, if yeah. I've well, check out check out the classic uh, Buxom Country Maid. Buxom Country Maid. Uh, you can't. You can't beat. You can't beat a Buxom Country Maid. There was a Buxom Country Maid who lived in Like the simple country life she led upon her farm And though she loved the farm She had a hankering for bows And she liked to reap the wild wind So she liked to sow her oats Away Um, I mean, pretty much, I mean, the main Pertwee that I know is um, the, uh, the, the I Am The Doctor one. Oh, right. Um, which is kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trivia about that that I know, and I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, is like if you're a, I think it's, uh, is it Deep, I think it's Deep Purple. If you're a Deep Purple fan, um, that's a super, 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 because it was produced by the person who produced Deep Purple, um, you know, the band, the yeah. metal band. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really in demand by kind of Deep Purple collectors as a single, as well as Who collectors as a single. So there you go. Huh. That's, a, that's, I, a, I, that's a great... I, I did not know it was a, a Deep Purple connection. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. I mean, 1972, a spoken word song. It is super cool. Pure Mystery, yes. I've got the B-side as well. Um, it doesn't talk about Deep Purple here, but apparently there is a Deep Purple connection. So, um, people who listen to this <laughs> podcast who are also Deep Purple fans, uh, write in and tell us whether we're right or not. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if our listener is a fan of Deep Purple. Well, we'll Deep find Purple. out. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then and there's his various quiz shows as well that he did. Good evening and welcome to Who Done It. There's Who Done It, which was like a kind of Cluedo style mm-hmm. one. Uh, I didn't watch any of those. I think those were on ITV. And I mean, I as I said, I, as a kid, I loved John Pertwee so much, 
as the Doctor, I felt anything that he did that was not being the Doctor was a betrayal and a sellout and something <laughs> that I should I should boycott. So I've not got a huge amount of kind of first-hand experience mm-hmm. of post-Pertwee uh, acting activity. Hmm. Well, there you go then. Um, So it was a bit of a surprise, Mm. I think, for him to be cast in 1969 as the third Doctor. Yeah, uh, as I think we were saying last week, um, I think they were they had a kind of light entertain. They were kind of looking at sort of light entertainment folks, as as exemplified by them also thinking about you know Ron Moody, um, you know from um, from Oliver. And Mr. Pastry out of Mr. Pastry, um, and I, I, <laughs> and I guess they they settle on John Pertwee, uh, which I think was he was an excellent choice. Indeed, yeah. And the season, season seven, that Derek Sherwin set up was a, quite a radical departure too. And I think if they would have had Pertwee start out with something like season eight, we definitely wouldn't have seen quite the flamboyant, flashy character it was that it was that real down-to-earth uh, more adult doctor who i think that set the tone for how he decided to play the character which is uh, i believe pretty much he was just playing himself he was yeah really the first actor to play the doctor as he would play himself yeah and i think i mean i've been re-watching the silurians mm-hmm. um which is you know a favorite he just strolls into that. I mean, obviously, you know, he's reading out the lines, right. so you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, as a physical presence, he kind of strolls into that seven parter and just takes the whole thing over. Basically, there isn't a single character who isn't like, oh, okay, I'm just mm-hmm. going to have to agree with you now. He's so much bigger. Um, his clothes are bigger. <laughs> um, they're more extravagant. Right. Um, you know, he walks around. You know, the Wenley Moore research. Um, atomic research establishment or whatever it's called um just kind of being mean to everybody um and you know solving the mystery right um and all the various kind of military bureaucrats and including the brigadier and you know atomic bureaucrats and actual bureaucrats jeffrey palmer are just like oh okay yeah i guess yeah you're in charge you're the man um, apart from um, Peter Mars, who, of course, goes off the deep end at the end in a very amusing way. And that kind of commanding uh, presence also continued on then with Ambassadors of Death, too. And he really... Absolutely. Uh, really similar, took, very similar. Similar, but also with the Ambassadors, with the, the cliffhanger, like, right, cut it open. He's in full charge of yep. what's going around. And you can tell that it's Pertwee's show um, very early on in season seven i wouldn't say so much in uh, spearhead but definitely by the time you're in silurians and then it's just reinforced in ambassadors and inferno which always seems i mean i'm always amazed not amazed am i always amazed um i mean it's always interesting to read about how kind of insecure he was as an actor as apparently he was mm-hmm. um and also it's always amazing to me how apparently nick courtney was so insecure as yeah. an actor and as a person as well but I mean, there's so much confidence in the performance, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and it is. I mean, you maybe it's a maybe it's a deliberate, you know, counterpoint to the as I said, the more kind of sneaky, kind of schoolboy ishness of Patrick Troughton, who is you know more of a kind of Molesworth, um, in some ways character. I always felt, and Pert was definitely the kind of senior prefect. Mm-hmm. As you said, he's the he's the he's as we were saying last week. He is the time lord, right? Um, and he is just lording it around. And as I said, you know, being in charge and solving the solving the mystery. I think also with, that mystery is with the type of actor he was it, when with very limited television exposure and used to following the script for for radio, that he was very by the books, by the number type performer. And then right. later on, or following in the footsteps of. Uh, someone like Troughton, who, granted, there was a pretty big sea change in the production team. Terrence Dix was the carryover from the War Games, but it's a it's a different style of acting that where Troughton would often ad lib or mix up lines or riff off other actors and kind of mix things up. Pertwee was very much by the script that was written. We worked it out in rehearsal, and that's the way we we're going to do it. And there wasn't a lot of uh, variation by the time you were recording that evening. And I think, you know, if, if anecdotes hold true, that came came to head 
during the time of the three doctors that Troughton, Troughton's approach to acting really rubbed uh, Pertwee the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, and that, actually, that's a really that's a really apposite comment you made. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Troughton was was always been you know, a, a screen actor, and uh, I, I guess you know lesser lesser so a, a stage actor, and therefore is you know in some ways uh, uh, used to learning lines, mm-hmm. um, and is you know is confident in in learning those lines, and then then is so confident in that he knows not only the words to be said, but also the meaning behind those words, yes. that he can improvise and work with other actors to bring out the current character moments more accurately, according certainly according to him, if not to the scriptwriter or the director. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, Pertwee, as a radio actor, you know, is, as, as I'm sure you're, everyone knows, you know, you stand in front of a microphone and you have the script in front of you and you read it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't really... You, Ideally, you would have read it before you see, before you read it, but you know, you in some ways you don't actually have to. You could just read it blind, right? Uh, but you know, you're reading stuff off the page, mm-hmm. um, and I think that may also, you know, that may be some of the some of the dominance of his performance could have something to do with uh, the dominance of Pertwee's performance could have something to do with you know he is. He has learnt these lines, and he's reading, you know, and he's reading them out in his head, and right. they're coming out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the, you know, maybe the, not the, uh, using a word like inflexibility might uh, seem like I'm I'm being critical, but I'm not. But you know, the kind of imperiousness of his delivery, uh, I think, may have something to do with the fact that you know, as I said he's a radio actor and is and is perhaps overcompensating in terms of kind of being accurate to the lines i did read one anecdote that certainly that for um the three doctors or at least one one maybe it was the time monster um you know he had bits of lines like glued around the set um (laughs) so that he was able to uh so in case he forgot them or maybe he didn't even have to learn them he could just read them off the set Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think there's the uh, stories where he would have lines pasted on the TARDIS console, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is which as a radio actor is absolutely fine. You know, mm-hmm. and we've all seen pictures. You know, even like Big Finish. You know, right. we've seen video of Big Finish being done, and the you know Paul McGann standing there with a script in his hand as right. he would. You know, why right. wouldn't he? I mean, why would you learn the lines if you didn't have to? If you didn't have to, <laughs> right? You only have a weekend to record, or maybe a couple of days. So why exactly? Why exactly. stretch it out? So and, it, and so yeah, and and the, and again, you know, I think I think you know, Pertwee's skill, you know, was reading those lines and you know putting that funny voice on mm-hmm. on top of them in kind of radio terms. Right. I mean, I wonder how he felt. I mean, again, maybe I should, you know, what if there are interviews around you now? How how he felt. You know, maybe the how he felt, you know, being himself, you know, rather than being a character. Maybe that's also the reason why you know, he's citing Gummidge as being the thing mm. that he loved the most, because he was, you know, hiding behind, a, you know, being a character rather than being himself. You know, maybe he wasn't happy having to be himself. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder, though, I wonder how much his character on the Navy Lark with uh, Chief Petty Officer Pertwee was himself too just with a silly voice or with a, a bit right. i wonder if he was uh often playing himself but just doing a s- silly voice for many of his more uh noticeable role or notable roles right yeah who knows yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 so uh interesting there's i think two really big relationships that are established in that first season season seven of Pertwee, uh, the first one would be with Nick Courtney, and as you noted, Courtney was a rather insecure actor too, always filled with doubt that he was as popular or as beloved or as good as he really was. Right. And so I think that really uh, what helped sell that first season is the continuity with Courtney's character, the Brigadier coming across, because with the wholesale change, there's no companions carrying over. The actor, lead actor, has changed. The doctor no longer travels in time and space. It's a different show. It's it's uh, it's rooted in the 1970s uh, uh, sci-fi home county type uh, drama. It's almost if it would be the X Files of the early 1970s without the conspiracy theory. Yeah, I mean it's Quatermass is what they're is what they're kind of working on. You've you've seen Quatermass, yeah. right? Or haven't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, because Quatermass was such a big deal, and we've talked about this before, you know, mm -hmm. in the 50s. Um, you know, it was a show that, you know, literally had tens of millions of people watching it. You know, the Queen, um, you know, famously, I th did she ask for it to be re... Oh, no, it was 1984 that she wanted them to do again so she could watch it. Um, but, you know, I mean, everyone was watching it. And it, so I think, you know, again, when when people who are now slightly older and are now in charge of TV themselves, they like, just like contemporary who, they go, okay, what was awesome when we were first watching sci-fi on TV? Ah, oh, yeah, Quatermass. Okay, well, mm -hmm. let's do that a little bit. It's also cheaper, I guess, too, if you're setting it, if you can, if your scenery is a refinery down the road, you don't yeah. have to build a set for it and you can then afford things like uh, explosions, helicopters, bigger casts. All that, yeah, yeah. I mean, funny actually, just looking at the those some of those images that have been coming out of Twitter from the you know those coloured coloured pictures from Power of the Daleks. Yeah. Um, you know how gorgeous. Well, I mean, obviously you've got to ignore the um, the lava lamps. Um, <laughs> no, but, those are know, great. <laughs> they, they are kind of good. It's, it's, it's a world, it's a universe wide wide power source. Daleks, colonists, Cybermen, they all use lava lamps. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know how just how gorgeous those set looked in color, right. um, but also how also kind of expensive they look. Right. And you don't have to do that, as you pointed out. Then maybe you can spend more money on hiring a helicopter for a couple of scenes, like they did in the Silurians. Yeah. Well, they also had helicopter in the invasion too. I think just the the pound went further in the late '60s, early '70s. Yeah. Definitely until uh, you know late '70s, where you yeah well yeah had well, inflation. It was um, Monster of Peladon that, um, the, you know, the kind of three-day week and the minor strike and the power cuts. I can remember right. missing large chunks of that that serial because uh, the TV wasn't working because we didn't mm -hmm. have any power because the miners were on strike. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, Britain in the 70s was a basket case, um, pretty like it is now, actually. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, less money to spend on who stuff. Right. Yeah. So yeah. the the other relationship I think that really helps uh, Pertwee establish his character or the the doctor's character in that first season is the one with uh, his co-actor Carolyn John right. uh, who played Liz Shaw. Yeah, and I think that was a really good dynamic too, and it would have been interesting to see how uh, that could have worked if uh, Letts and Dix had wanted uh, Carolyn John to return, but she. I believe the story is she gave notice because she was pregnant and was going to have her first child. Yep. And uh, Dix and Letts really wanted someone more like Joe Grant, Katie Manning, who would sit around and ask the doctor questions. They yeah. they couldn't conceive of a series where you had two smart people, a man and a woman, uh, solving the problem together rather than a, a teacher-student a type role. Yeah, yeah. Though, I mean, I think all... I mean, you 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 mentioned the X Files. I mean, that's the kind of relationship with the X Files. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the X Files is basically a reverse Scooby Doo. Um, <laughs> you know, instead of it always being a man in a mask, i.e., it's not a monster or a ghost. In the X Files, it always is a monster or a ghost. Um, and why the silly lady on the X Files doesn't actually? Yeah, you're right. It it always is a ghost to the smart man um, mm -hmm. on on the X Files. I mean, it's a similar relationship. You know, right. there's always like there's always like a smart one and a dumb one. Mm. Um, but Liz and, Shaw wasn't really the dumb one in, in well exactly in, I mean I think I think Gillian Anderson's is, character I don't think she was skeptical she was always doubting in X-Files but I don't think she was portrayed as dumb I always thought she was kind of dumb because like how skeptical can you continue to be after like four <laughs> or five seasons of it always being a ghost or a monster like right. this has got, there's got to it's be a rational explanation for this <laughs> um, it can't be an alien well it always is an alien so like Come on, just believe Mulder because he's always right, yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I really, I, I didn't like the X Files yeah. very much. Well, um, but Liz Shaw's great. Mm -hmm. I think she's fantastic. And isn't, 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 isn't it's her daughter is redoing being her in the new big finishes? I believe right? you're right. Yeah, I believe they yeah. cast her daughter as to play yes. Liz Shaw. To play, yeah, um, not Liz Shaw's daughter, obviously Carolyn John's daughter. Um, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> well. I don't know. I haven't listened to them, but they... Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Yeah, they're the same people. The they've recasted the, the Brigadier. Yeah. They've recasted the Doctor, obviously. Yeah. And uh, Carolyn John. So it'd be interesting to do. I just wonder 
Uh, have we reached peak 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 finish yet? Uh, well, that's probably a different different peak, podcast. Peak finish, <laughs> right? Peak finish. Yeah, yeah. This is a different podcast. So, but yeah. So yeah, she's she's great. She's really good. We obviously haven't settled down. I mean, they still have a kind of rotating cast of um, unit soldiers, mm-hmm. not really kind of settled down into the kind of you know Yates Benton axis yet. Right. Um, we've got Hawkins who wanders on wanders in from. Um, uh, uh, on on the Solarians, right. who's uh, you know obviously uh, Paul Darrow, mm-hmm. and and you're another bunch of different ones who are all the ones who are trying to sort, trying to secure the missile mm-hmm. in uh, in Mind of Evil, not Mind of Evil, beg, beg your pardon, so, um, Ambassadors of Death. I'm getting my I get yeah. my my seasons mixed up. Mm-hmm. Um, who are trying to uh, deal with the aliens? So for season eight, the big change again. We're yeah uh, a switch of assistance with uh, Katie Manning taking on joe grant and this is the next three seasons i think are the core the highlight of the pertwee uh era when people think of uh, pertwee they think of uh, katie manning with as joe grant and uh, unit heavy stories and it's not so much uh season seven with uh, liz shaw or season 11 with sarah jane smith it's that core uh eight nine and ten Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, it's an interesting five years because, as you just pointed out, you have like two bookends um, of one uh, Liz Shaw and the other Sarah Jane Smith, and then in the middle you have uh, Joe Grant, who, uh, as I think, well, I mean, we talked about this last week. I really like their relationship. I think it's a really effective one, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think that Joe is as uh, has uh, so little agency as I think you know more traditional fans are want to present her as you just kind of a screaming child. I think she's actually pretty. By the end, I think she's pretty self reliant and tough and interesting. Mm-hmm. And I I just think their their kind of you know father daughter relationship is just a really really kind of beautiful one and you know works very well for a program that is ostensibly for kids but is also for grown-ups i think it works really nicely well i think touching on the the perceived fan wisdom or the the more historical fan wisdom this was uh more based off of memory than actual what was on the screen and this was probably being developed during sarah jane smith's time and looking back at joe grant and there's probably you know the memory cheats as uh jnt would say yeah, yeah. No, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's also to do with um, memories of the assistants of the 60s, you know, who were particularly screamy and prone to spraining their ankles and stuff. Well, so was Sarah. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. When they finally, when they kind of like, you know, when she stopped being a journalist and started being a, just a falling over kind of person. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, I think that's the relationship that develops, you mm-hmm. know, with the doctor and his assistant you know i think and again what's so beautiful about baker and and sladen is you know you do get the idea that these people are good friends right. and they kind of enjoy each other's company and like spending time together the other thing also i mean it's just also i think fans often forget is that neither the doctor nor the doctor's assistants are actually real people um they're actors <laughs> reading out lines um, and those lines are written by a writer they're edited by a script editor and from time to time, they're improvised by the actors themselves. But they're primarily, you know, written by a writer and edited by a script editor. So right. when you're saying, you know, oh, the assistant seems like a child or, you know, he's always spraying their ankle. Well, they're not actually doing that. They're told to do that by the person who's writing them. So, you know, you have to look at, well, who is writing this? And, you know, Malcolm Hulk writes in it, writes the stories in one particular way. Terence Dix writes them in another particular way. Robert Holmes writes them in another particular way. Right. You know, Bob Baker and Dave Martin, who seem to be particularly, <laughs> I think, interested in people spraining their ankles, writes it in another way. You know, it's, right. that's, it's the writers that, right. that, that you look at, right. not the characters. Right. Yeah, and it's a collective that's writing for these characters. And as we've discussed numerous times in the past, it's really these men who have their own... Uh, views and hang-ups and agendas that exactly, are exactly, there yeah. telling the stories. Exactly. And because they're genre, they're male genre TV writers who were, you know, all born in the 20s or 30s right. and are writing for high-speed genre TV in the 70s, um, <laughs> they're not very good at writing women. Right. <laughs> 
You know, yeah. if they were good at writing women, they'd be Harold Pinter, and he wasn't very good at writing women either. So you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. um, and it, it, and it's a high speed show, you know, mm-hmm. and it, and I think this is a thing that again I always find super interesting reading about contemporary who and how they complain a lot about how difficult it is to make mm-hmm. and i think it's always been a really really hard show to make and it doesn't really matter how much money you've got it's always difficult mm-hmm. and i think these scripts were being delivered at high speed and then they were being you know rehearsed and filmed and etc at, at high speed uh, again you know it's been just the just the rewatch i was trying to do last week of the silurians and reading the production notes and you know how Barry Newbury had you know had 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 to send out the construction of the caves the you know, the, the Wenley Moore Research Establishment caves had had to go out to an exterior contractor um, who completely bores the whole thing up and when he got all the stuff back none of it worked so because right. of course the caves don't look very good because he had to do them like himself over 24 hours and it was still wet right. when they were filming in it you know this is yeah you know th- as I said as we as we are emphasizing each other's point, you know, this isn't real, you know, this is not real. These aren't real caves. These are made up caves. And sometimes um, they don't look very good because they're real people trying to make them mm-hmm. similar, similarly with the scripts, you know. So. And it, it, again, it is television that was only meant to be watched once. And yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> when we go over with our fine tooth comb on DVDs or now upscale Blu-rays, we're going to see the flaws in the production, but then the, the flaws in the writing too, they're, uh, this is a criticism and it's a defense. They are a product of their times, and they yeah. have. Uh, they're they're definitely a product of the uh, the cadre of writers that were uh, able to deliver a script in time and relatively within a budget that could be uh, executed or produced for Doctor Who. Yeah, and I think the emphasis was: can you write it in time, right. and can we produce it? Mm-hmm. Rather than you know can you create effective female characters or not? I mean, that really wasn't what was needed. You know, the BBC had play for today and, you know, or you you go to the Royal Court or something if you wanted to try and write effective drama examining, you know, contemporary sexual politics. Um, But Doctor Who wasn't doing that. He was, Mm -hmm. you know, entertaining people on a Saturday night with scares about monsters. Yeah, well, I think of a writer like uh, Don Houghton who wrote uh, Ambassadors and then Mind mind of evil in season eight yeah where he cast as or he wrote for his wife who played uh uh chim lee yeah i think you get more believable female characters for from some some of the writers and more more plausible actions are of the the female women in the cast but those writers weren't picked up for whatever reason houghton was done after the mind of evil he didn't have a returning script and yeah in uh, season nine so yeah it is a reflection i think of what's in the script but i think it also comes across what we which i mentioned last time with uh, pertwee himself in the in kind of imperialist manner in the demons where he's really condescending to katie manning's character right and that's kind of the nadir i think of their uh relationship where you have yeah, kind of I think the, you're right. the jerk authoritarian uh <laughs> uh in pertwee but then Manning's Joe Grant always can subvert that, and she, even though, even though Pertwee's a bit of an ass, uh, or quite you know quite obnoxious to her, rude, uh, patronizing, it, it's ultimately Joe Grant's sacrifice that saves the day. So even even with uh, Sloman and Letts, where that writing really manifested itself for that uh, that. Uh, uh, bombastic, uh, paternalistic, uh, authoritarian Pertwee doctor. They also have the scenes where it's Joe's sacrifice or willingness to die for the doctor that totally up upends us all. Yeah, yeah. Which is again, I mean, I think you really have to have the character of Joe as as written in that way to make that even remotely believable. If you see what I mean, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think. I couldn't see Liz Shaw throwing herself, um, <laughs> you know, to the ground and saying like, "No, take me instead." No, you're um, right. she would have already developed some kind of clever subatomic way to kind of get rid of Izal anyway. At that right. by, by that point, I mm-hmm. mean, they wouldn't have had to have had um, what's his name, the who's the incompetent unit technician. I can't remember his name now. The one with the with the heat barrier who kind of gets it all wrong. Um, 
that one. Well, anyway, it, it was Oswald, right, or some Oswald? Yeah, that's it. Oswald. Yeah, exactly. Oz, um, yeah, I think Oz, so. Ozzy, Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Liz Shaw would have been able to handle that. Right. Um, it would have. You know, it would have worked perfectly, mm-hmm. and there would have been no comedy business whatsoever because she would have been on it. So yeah, you know. So I mean, you have to have Joe as a little bit. Osgood, sorry. Osgood, that's yeah. it. Osgood, Ozzy Osgood. Um, yeah, you know, so you you have to have had Joe to be a little bit childlike to make that make that sacrifice, mm-hmm. or you know, or, or offer herself up in in a way that you know mm-hmm. is barely comprehensible actually outside of a TV drama, mm-hmm. um, but kind of works because um, we know the character a little bit, and you know, Katie Manning kind of sells it because she also knows the character really well. Yeah. And uh, also knowing the character really well uh, is the complimentary. The season eight also has Roger Delgado uh, uh, appear as the master. Yes. So we have uh, in, in that first uh, first uh, reprise of the Autan story in Terror of the Autons, we introduce Yates, uh, Manning as Joe Grant, and then Delgado's master. Yeah. And I think... It goes without saying, but really the untimely death of Roger Delgado really changed the course of Doctor Who, especially John Pertwee's run. Yes. In 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 the in the storytelling. And yes. With him with him not being able to return for season eleven or even uh yeah, in se- in season eleven after he died after the Frontier in Space, it really I think probably you know what probably just changed the dynamic on the set or the the fun had gone out for Pertwee. Yeah, yeah. And he was also, I mean, he was, you know, he he took over the role when he was in his early 50s, right? He was 50 or something? 53, I think. 53. So, you know, he's getting towards his late 50s um, after five years and all that kind of dashing around. Well, he had a bad back and things... And he had a bad back and all that. Yeah, so... You know, I mean, I think he was obviously thinking about, okay, maybe it's time I hung up my action hat right. and, and started to <laughs> pretend a I was a scarecrow for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, and Delgado was such a great, so I mean, so great. You yeah. know, I mean, I don't think there's any, there's, he almost defies analysis. He's just so good mm-hmm. as the master. Um, and the, the fact that he is so good also means that when Anthony Ainley comes along, they just make him dress up as Roger Delgado. And mm. eventually Ainley manages to kind of, you know, wrench the role nearer towards his own skills, right. um, kind of away from them, him just pretending to be Roger Delgado. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's he's just so brilliant at it. Well, it took him all the 1980s to do. It wasn't really until Survival, Survival. that Ainley... Yeah. F- that we have a real yeah. Ainley master. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And the, you know, by again, by all accounts, and I have no no reason to to, to doubt this. Isn't there been a recent biography of Delgado published? It seems to be a biography of everyone being published at the moment. But anyway, by all accounts, he was just an awesome person as well, mm-hmm. and super fun to be around, and really good at acting, and everyone liked him, and he was really nice, <laughs> right? And his wife was great as well, Kismet. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it was just a, that this idea of a company, and I think again, perhaps you know, for sort of actors who are have an insecurity like Nick Courtney or John Pertwee, this idea that you're part of a company, a band of brothers, um, an acting company who do everything together and we go on location together and, you know, we stay in the hotel and we have a drink in the evening or two together and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is part, I think, of the fun of being an actor. Not that it doesn't sound like being fun anyway, but, you know, it's, it's it's what an actor's life is and what they enjoy. Um, and when you lose like a kingpin from that, like uh, like they lost Elgar, Delgado in such, you know, ridiculously accidental and tragic circumstances, mm-hmm. um, I think it means everyone goes like, ugh, I, yeah, this right. isn't working for me anymore. Yeah, I think it was a it was a kind of a double whammy with uh, Delgado's death and then with Manning deciding to leave the role. Yeah, yeah. But as I said, I mean, in the, you know, in that first season, people have said, well, it's, you know, I think people at the time said to themselves, one reads, well, you know, it was the master just, it's the master every episode. Right. Uh, so we got boring by the end. Well, actually, for net for us, now watching it, you know, and I didn't 
watch the season it was broadcast. It's just great. It's Richard Rodgers is going to be back every ep- episode. This mm-hmm. is fantastic. I don't mind. It's the master, you know, with increasingly, you know, unlikely aliases and also time scales. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know. it's also stretched over six months, and the master isn't in in every episode either. So it's not like you sit down and watch all of season eight now in one go. And right, 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 right. You, you're watching it over a series of six months, a week at a time, and some of those episodes, Delgado wasn't in there at all as the master. But it's always wonderful when, you know, when he kind of, he just turns up, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's why I like Colony in Space so much, because, you know, um, <laughs> it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's Roger Delgado. It's like, why does anyone recognize him? It's the master, everybody. Quick, run, hide. Um, you know, right. it's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And he's just so good as well. When he turns up yeah. in things, mm. <laughs> he's just so evil and like cheerful, mm-hmm. and you know likes being evil, and you know. Yeah, for me, his uh, the best part of the demons is Delgado's uh, Reverend Magister. Yeah, exactly, exactly the Reverend Master, and again the fact that, as I said, the time scale so doesn't work through that season as well. He's like you know. The master, I, I guess the master has a time machine, so maybe he just nips back in time <laughs> and then spends like a couple of years like being a vicar right. and kind of really embedding himself in the community mm-hmm. before he exercise before he starts his plan. Or maybe you know the seventies just stretched out into several decades. <laughs> well, they were in, mistaken in for the nineteen eighties. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, he goes to goes to Switzerland and you know develops captures an alien and puts it into a box. Right. Uh, and makes it into a mind of evil. I think you can explain it all with time time travel. I think you can explain it all with time travel. The way he just doesn't go back in time and fix the broken <laughs> the, the plan that the Doctor foiled the previous story. You know, there you go. It's it's all it's all in good fun. <laughs> Different writers, yeah. It's all in good fun. Um, but yeah, it's he is he is a he is a true star, yeah. true star. Well, yeah. we see what happens with that in the Curse of the Fatal Death. It just gets absurd. Yes, so yeah, you can't. It's not worth. It's not really worth pursuing. I think. I mean, I think isn't that one of the to me one of the most convincing arguments against time travel is that it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I, I to, to time travel can't exist because actually, if you think about it, it stops making sense. So, you know, it anyway. it works well, I think, when you start this show and the Doctor is the only individual who can time travel and then of course you have this exclusive lock on this technology and you're the only time traveler but then when you add the daleks and the monk and any you know anyone for the sake of story can time travel it does uh, it does stretch stretch the fabric of credulity i think yeah yeah um and then yeah i mean then you know your your bentons and your yates Mm -hmm. um also kind of grow into it. I mean, I think Yates was introduced as a potential love interest for Joe. Mm-hmm. And obviously that, that kind of didn't really go anywhere because the No chemistry. <laughs> no chemistry at all. I mean, the chemistry is actually between the group rather than between individuals. Right. And certainly the chemistry between Nick Courtney and his subordinates, I think, is, is very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually is absolutely as it should be because that's how, you know, if you're a, he's you a know, leader in the army. Yeah. He's a leader, yes, yes. And he plays one brilliantly on TV. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there's obviously, that was obviously never going to happen. I think mainly because it's clear that, you know, that... Um, there's a there's a relation not you know, the relationship is between the doctor and Joe not right. between Joe and her you mm-hmm. know potential boyfriends right yeah 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 it uh, the closest I think were probably the cut scenes with Bill Filer in Claws of Access where they were oh, trying to set about Filer yeah set him up as the love potentially a love interest for Katie Manning they were supposed to have a a scene but I believe it was cut due to time. Yeah, he would have been a good. He would have been a good boyfriend for Joe, actually. I think he would have worked better than uh, Yates ever did. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, sorry he didn't come back. Actually, I like Bill Filer. Uh, if the actor, I wonder if the actor could reprise his role in for Big Finish. Now that would be a. Oh yeah, that would be a big. Come finish. on, Big Finish, <laughs> the big, the Bill Filer Chronicles. <laughs> Filer, Filer. Um, <laughs> who are they? Who, who are they? What did I read? Who are they doing now? God, I can't remember. It was like. Oh, that's it. The newsreader off um off CNN or whatever it is on new series. Who's got her own series on oh, Big Finish? You got to be kidding me. No, I'm not just kidding. It's not CNN. It's like ONN yeah, or right, something. Right. 
Yeah, so she's got her own series. She's like an investigative reporter now, rather than just like someone who's reading the news. Yeah. Um, it's like, come on, Big Finish. I'm, I'm You're guessing scraping weird barrels. That's why. Here. That's why I asked earlier. Have we reached peak, peak Big Finish here? Well, I'm, I'm in favor of the John Coleshaw. I mean, I haven't heard it because mm-hmm. I, I have. To, I'm having to listen. Well, of course, I'm listening to these Pertwee, uh, the Tim Trelaw Pertwees, A in order, mm-hmm. and B when I can afford them, right. and so because they're. Afford them both in price and time. Time is exactly. always the precious commodity. Yeah. So, so I haven't, I haven't got to the ones with uh, with Coolshaw yet, but mm-hmm. I'm entirely in favour of of because Cool is such a great who fan right. and impressionist. Right. Um. I, obviously, I don't know how well uh, Liz Shaw's daughter's doing as Liz Shaw. It's not Liz Shaw's daughter. It's Caroline John's daughter. Um. Is doing impersonating <laughs> her mother, but um. Yeah, I'm in favour of those, but I think yeah, I think I think um. I'd rather have the Filer Chronicles than. The, the woman O-N-N who read the O-N-N news. Chronicles. <laughs> yes, exactly. O-N-N Chronicles. Um, yeah. yeah. Peak yeah. Big Finish. Well, I mean, good luck to them. I, I don't think we... Re- I think we may have reached Peak Big Finish, but as long as they're still making money, I'm saying good luck to them. Well done. <laughs> You've turned your love of a particular silly TV show into something that's apparently making everyone money, which is nice. Well, at least keeping keeping food on the table. Keeping food on the table, yes. And keeping... Convention circuits plumb. Exactly, exactly. Keeping Nick Briggs in whatever Nick Briggs likes to do, yes. Filthy, filthy lucre. Filthy lucre, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So do you think um, we should uh, wrap up here and then continue on with the last three seasons and uh, let's, next let's episode? Wrap, let's wrap up here and continue on with the last three seasons the next episode. I think that's a good plan, yeah. All right, well, thank you for listening to episode 123 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been chatting with Ben. And I have been chatting with David. And until next time. Goodbye. I cross the void beyond the mind. The empty space that circles time. I see where others tumble blind To seek a truth that they never find Eternal wisdom is my guide I am the doctor Through cosmic waste the TARDIS flies To taste the secret source of life A present science can't deny exists Within, outside, behind The latitude Dissects the course of time. Who knows, you say, but are you right? Who searches deep to find the light that glows so darkly in the night? Toward that point, I guide my feet. As fingers move to end mankind, metallic teeth begin their grind. With sword of truth, I turn to fight. The satanic powers of the night Is your faith before your mind? Know me, am I the doctor? Hi! I'm trying to do a... Hey! Hey! <laughs> oh, funny. <laughs> All right.